0: everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Talking Tutors. I'm your host, Natalie Gruniger. Thank you so much for joining me i always like to begin by thanking the wonderful listeners who continue to support my podcast on patreon and extending a heartfelt thank you to everyone who's taken the time to rate and review the show this really does make a difference if you love the podcast and you never miss an episode i invite you to join the talking tutors patron family visit patreon.com talking tutors for more information Join the Talking Tudors patron family and in addition to receiving lots of Tudor themed goodies, you'll have access to patron-only monthly giveaways. April's prize is a copy of the Carnival of Ash. A huge thank you to Solaris Books for sponsoring this great prize. Patrons are also eligible to attend additional monthly talks that take place live on Zoom. Next month I'll be chatting to O'Leary Lynn about Tudor textiles and fashion. You can also support the podcast and share your love of Tudor history with the world by buying Talking Tudors merchandise. There are a number of designs and products available, including phone cases, mugs, notebooks, and apparel. Check out all the products at talkingtudors.threadless.com. I'd love to see pics of you wearing or using your Talking Tudors merch, so please do tag me on social media and use the hashtag ILoveTalkingTudors. Now on to today's episode, I'm absolutely thrilled that joining me on the show to talk about Anne de Graville is Dr. Elizabeth Lestrange. Elizabeth was born in London and studied for a BA in English Language and Literature, an MA in Medieval Studies and a PhD in Art History at the University of Leeds. Her first book, Holy Motherhood, Gender, Dynasty and Visual Culture in the Later Middle Ages, was published in 2008 as an interdisciplinary study of images of maternity in books of hours and their interpretation by aristocratic viewers. She has published widely on women patrons and book owners in France in the late 15th and early 16th century especially Anne of France and Anne of Brittany. She's currently Associate Professor, Senior Lecturer in the Department of Art History, curating and visual studies at the University of Birmingham. She's now preparing an edition translation of Anne de Graville's Beau Roman and Rondeau with Joanie McRae. Our conversation's coming up straight after this short musical break courtesy of guitarist John Sales. <laughs> Welcome to Talking Tutors, Elizabeth. How are you?
1: Thank you very much for having me, Natalie. I'm very pleased to be here.
0: It's lovely. I've been looking forward to this chat. So I suppose a good place to begin is you just introducing yourself to our listeners and just telling everyone a little bit about you and your background.
1: Uh, well, I'm now a senior lecturer at the University of Birmingham. I work in the Department of Art History, Curating and Visual Studies, and I joined there in uh, 2011. And before that, I spent some time in research posts in French-speaking Belgium. And before that, I did a degree in English language and literature at the University of Leeds, uh, where I discovered an interest in medieval gender studies. We were reading texts like The Wife of Bath and The Anchor Noisa. And then I stayed on at Leeds, where I did an MA in medieval studies, where I learned a lot more about manuscripts and especially about books of hours and about Christine de Pizzo and Boccaccio. And then I went on and did a PhD in art history at Leeds, working specifically on books of ours and especially on images of maternity and motherhood and how these would have been interpreted by women who might have been expected to produce heirs for uh, a dynasty. And I suppose, so I suppose I've suppose, i got quite a, an eclectic background, literature, art history, manuscript studies, history of the book, and that's sort of, I suppose that's kind of come together in the latest study of Anne de Graville.
0: Yes, and we are here to talk about your new book, which I received just a couple of days ago, which is absolutely stunning, by the way. Congratulations. Thank you. So Anne de Graville, I like how you pronounce it, I'll copy you, and Women's Literary Networks in Early Modern France. So what was what was the inspiration for this book? Maybe just tell us a little bit about how it came about.
1: Um, well, I... Worked In the course of my PhD and in my first book, uh, I worked quite a lot on Anna Brittany, who was Claude of France's mother, and also on Anna Brittany's sister-in-law, Anna France. And so I kind of had a, a sense of who Claude was and that she, and she was getting quite a lot of attention from other scholars, including a good friend of mine, Kathleen Wilson-Chevalier, who sort of put me on the piece of Anne de Graville and said, oh, she's written this interesting work for Claude. That would be something to sort of maybe work up into a paper or a conference paper. And I started that and it quickly became apparent that Anne was far more interesting than just a conference paper or a short article. So I got a sense of her having a library and being quite a key person at the French court. Um, And then these works that she wrote um, for these women at the court as well. So, yeah, it became a, a much bigger decade-long project. So yeah, that's how it all began really.
0: And so for, for people that maybe haven't heard of her before, who was she? Can you tell us a little bit about maybe her family? Yeah, or so that, she, something?
1: yeah she was um the third daughter, the youngest child of uh, Louis de Graville and his wife Marie de Balzac. Uh, Louis de Graville was the Admiral of France so he had quite an important job sort of running the navy, as it was. And he was close to quite a few French kings. So he served under several successive kings of France. Um, and his wife, Marie de Bazaar, was also from a, a, an aristocratic family with connections to the, to the French monarchy. Um, so they had three children. The family was of Norman origin. So they had uh, land and property in Normandy. But they obviously also must have spent time close to the, the king in Paris and the, the Rouen Valley. Um, we don't know much about Anne's Early life, She probably was born in about 1490. She had two older sisters, Jeanne and Louise. And we don't know her date of death either. We think she died around 1540 when the records seem to sort of, there's no more indication of her in various records. But her parents were bibliophiles. They had their own collections of manuscripts. Louise was also an important patron of arts and sculpture. So we can imagine that she was brought up in a, a world that was sort of imbued with literature and manuscripts, and illuminated manuscripts and, and, and art. And that's perhaps where she got her own love of books from, was from her parents' collection. And she goes on to inherit some of those later on. Um, in 1507, um, she married her cousin, Pierre de Balzac, which was not a union that her father was very keen on. And in fact, tried to prosecute Pierre for abducting his daughter. So we can, might imagine that she had perhaps a, a strong character and wanted to, to follow her own path. That's quite the romantic reading. But they, the marriage lasted. They had lots of children. Um, and she does honour Pierre in one of her manuscripts. His coat of arms appears there. She uses a, a joint coat of arms. So we can imagine that this perhaps was a, a union of, of love. But it did cause her to be disinherited by her father in the first instance. So she's written out of the will there are various sort of slightly 19th century romantic readings of her trying to be reconciled with her father, but she doesn't get reinstated until after his death. So after Louis dies in 1516, she contests the, the will and the inheritance, and she does a deal with her sister and her surviving nieces and nephews, and uh, manages in 1518 to get her share of Louis's books and movable goods, and in 1520, she uh, gets some of his property as well. So she's quite tenacious. And it's after 1520 that we start to see more of Anne in the historical record. So perhaps the resolution of her inheritance led to a better financial situation. So she can buy books, she can commission more things.
0: Yes, I think I first came across her when I was doing some research into Anne Boleyn's early life. That's who I study. And and of course, she spent time in, well, we think, in the service of Queen Claude, although there's no archival record of Anne being there. And I believe oh. it's the same for our Anne that we're discussing today. Is that right? It
1: is, yeah. There's a lot of... Um, Some of the early work on Anne de Graville and some of that dates from the late 19th, early 20th century sort of just states she was in the service of Claude de France. She was a dame d'honneur of Claude de France. Um, But I haven't found any record of that at all. Maybe she was. What I did find was in there are some references to a dame d'entraigue, which was the seigneurie of, of Pierre de Balzac, so another name for Anne de Graville. Uh, in the service of Margaret of Navarre, up until about fifteen twenty nine. So she may have been in Margaret's service, but then Margaret was the sister-in-law of Claude, so it would have brought her into the same kind of circles. And yeah, and she maybe she did even meet Anne Boleyn. I mean, she did spend time at Claude's court. They might have crossed paths, and um, and even you know we. we possible that Anne de Graville was at the Field of the Cloth of Gold, from some of the references that she makes in her work. So she was definitely in that milieu, and she she writes a book at the request of the Queen, so she must have known the Queen or the Queen must have felt that she wanted to, Anne to write something for her. So she was obviously in the right circles, even if she wasn't necessarily her, in her service.
0: Okay. So before we look at the two poetic works that Anne authored in the 1520s, tell us about the debate that emerged in France in in the 15th century, known as the Querelle des Dames or the controversy about women.
1: Yeah, so that's a, it's a it's a very uh, complex and interesting debate. There are lots of ways in which we could say that the Querelle des Femmes began and where its origins are. But I suppose for the period we're looking at in the 15th century, we might say it began with Christine de Pizon taking issue with um, the negative portrayal of women in much contemporary literature and in sermons and in, in devotional and religious texts. So Christine de Pizon was another female writer at the French court 100 years before Anne de Graville. Um she had to earn a living by writing because she lost her husband and had a family to support. And she doesn't do- just write about women, she writes about a lot of things, but she's probably perhaps best known for her defense of women. So she was particularly appalled by the way women were portrayed in a text known as The Romance of the Rose, which sort of implies women are devious and, and cunning and casts them in a very negative light. Um, and she gets into a big epistolary debate about the, the pros and cons of The Romance of the Rose and its, author, its authors, were two of them. And this kind of leads her, I think, to enter into a, a desire to defend women from these negative criticisms. And she writes the... Uh, city of Ladies, the Book of the City of Ladies, which is a catalogue of famous women who have done amazing things in their lifetimes. They're generally classical women, there aren't very many contemporary women or, or even Christian women in, in the city, but it's about sort of re women's contribution to society. Um, and she models her catalogue on Boccaccio's De Mulieribus Claris. Boccaccio was also purportedly defending women in his catalogue, but he undercuts them at every opportunity. So he sort of says, oh, she was a great queen, but she was, you know, not very good at doing this, that, and the other. But Christine is much more into showing off women's moral virtues, their ability to rule, their ability to act as educators, and and generally as being good citizens, and not to be defamed by men. <laughs> so this is, this is the context at the beginning of the 15th century, and they sparked lots of other works, like Martin Le France, uh, Champion des Dames, which is also a, a, a text written in defense of women. And I think Anne de Grivel is sort of, she's aware of this. She's probably read some of these works. And that's what is kind of partly in
0: inspiring her own writings. So tell us about Anne's poetic works.
1: So she wrote two surviving works and a short poem, A Rondeau, which is in a manuscript and was also printed by uh, Geoffroy Toury in the champs But the two works that I focused on in the book are The Roman which I think... I mentioned previously, was, was written at the behest of the Queen of France, Queen Claude, and the Rondeau, which um, I discovered in the writing of the book was written for Louise of Savoy and not the Claude of France. So the Beau is a rewriting of Boccaccio's Tessaida, which is also the source for Chaucer's Knight's Tale. But Anne doesn't seem to have translated the work directly from Boccaccio's Italian. She's working from a mid-15th century uh, mise-en-prose, a prose version of the, of, the book of the book of Theseus. And this is a copy that she has in her library. We know the copy that she had is now in the Bodleian in, in Oxford. Generally, it's a story of two lovers, Palamon and Arcita, who are vying for the hand of Emilia, who is an Amazon princess, the sister of Hippolyta, an Amazon queen. Um, but the original Boccaccio tale is very long and has all kinds of other bits to the story. And what Anne does is she massively truncates the story. So it focuses specifically on the tale of Emilia and these two men who are kind of fighting for her hand in marriage. And again, whereas in... Boccaccio and indeed in Chaucer's version, Emily's a rather passive figure. She doesn't have much agency. She doesn't speak very much. And de makes her Emilia, much more proactive, much more, gives her much more agency, gives her much more kind of interior speech and direct speech. And that makes her more makes her very compassionate. And she seems to she comes across as a kind of mediating figure between these two men who are kind of, she doesn't know which one to choose and she's trying to appease both of them. And we want, I wonder whether there's some, she's holding up a mirror perhaps to Claude of France and sort of suggesting perhaps this is, where you might negotiate these male rivalries that are happening at the French court at the same time. So Francis I is is caught up in a lot of rivalries with Henry VIII. He's caught up in rivalries with Charles V, the Holy Roman Emperor, and also with his own constable, Charles de Bourbon Montpensier. And and the Bourbon is written at, at the time just after the probably the Field of the Cloth of Gold when he's when Francis has met up with Henry to do a kind of deal over certain things, obviously it all falls apart. And and makes reference to, oh, I've been to Ard and I've seen these magnificent princes. And, and she describes um, Palamon and Arsita in terms that could conceivably be Francis I and Henry VIII. So I think she's, she's updating a very classical story with reference to the French court. So there's lots of politics going on, I think, in the background of this, this text too. And the Rondeau is um, another rewriting, so I think this is something that Anne was interested in, is kind of retellings of, of stories. The Rondeau is a rewriting of Alain Chartier's 1424 poem, La Belle Dame Sans Merci, and this poem was in itself very controversial, so it causes its own querelle, it has its own controversy and debate when it's first written. So... It's about uh, a lover who wants to seduce uh, a lady and it's a conversation between the two of them and the lady is having none of it. She really doesn't want to be seduced by this lover and she comes up with all kinds of arguments as to why they're not going to have a relationship and the lover then ends up sort of disappearing at the end of the story and be led to understand that he probably dies. And it caused a huge amount of debate amongst readers and other poets who found the lady either too uncourtly and sort of cruel to the lover and others who thought, well, she's standing in her position. She has the right to say no to this man who's making his advances towards her. So there are lots of responses to the poem that put the lady on trial, that kind of acquit her. And these poems are collected in manuscript Um, copies that circulate at courts, particularly at the Court of Blois, headed up by Marie de Clair and and Jacques Lorient. And so I think Anne was sort of entering into another Kirill in, in rewriting this, this uh, Belle Dame Sans And like the, the Beaurement, she truncates her source. So she chops off the sort of beginning of the poem, which is introduced by an actor. And then she kind of goes straight into the debate between the lover and the lady. And what she also does is she transforms Chartier's eight-line poem, eight-line verses, sorry, into 13-line Rondeaux. So she has more words to play with, more words and more lines to play with. But the really interesting thing Thing about this text which only survives in one copy is that she includes Chartier's original poems in the margins of the manuscript so you have a sort of debate going on between Chartier's original poem in the margin and Anne's rewriting of it on the main page and what she does is she takes words from Chartier, takes phrases from his poem and uses them, but sometimes turns them upside down and uses them in a different way. So you have this interesting debate going on between the lover and the and the lady all the way through, and you also have the debate between Anne de Graville and one of the masters of French poetry, Alain Chartier. So she's, it's quite an audacious move, I think, and a deliberate, a deliberate mise en page, a deliberate setting out of the of the poems on the page to to in, to sort of get the reader engaged in that debate, which I think then reflects the debate. That have been happening in, you know, sort of 50 or so years earlier between the different the different voices in the in the poem. And the the curious thing about this poem is that it's well, all the prologues in there are six copies of the Bourremans, and in all six copies, bar one, I think, the, the prologue is addressed à la reine to the Queen, sometimes à la reine Claude. So we know for certain that the Bourremont was made for Claude. And there is there is an image of her being given the book by Anne de Graville in the Arsenal copy. But the the ronda always struck me as slightly odd because the prologue is addressed a Madame. And people always said, Oh, it's the, it's the earlier of the two works. And I kept thinking, what is it? Claude before she became queen. Is it to uh, my lady Claude? And then I it just didn't something didn't quite sit right with me about it. And I sort of started digging around. And I mean it's just serendipity or luck or whatever lockdown late <laughs> night googling, <laughs> but I found um what must be the missing miniature the missing frontispiece from the, the copy of the poem and it, it was somehow it must have been detached and it was inserted into a different manuscript of a similar date a copy of religious religious poems and, and prayers and it shows a woman giving a book to Louise of Savoy. It cannot be anyone other than Louise of Savoy because it has anagrams of her name, it has her coat of arms, she's dressed like a widow, as she is in many other manuscripts. And the revert the, the back side of the of the page has the title,
0: La Belle Dame sans merci, mise en rendant. What an incredible <laughs> find where you just uh, over them. Yeah, and <laughs> then uh, but the
1: but the, the, the complete irony of that is that at the end of the article. Where this is just not really discussed. It's not actually the objects of, of, of the paper. It's something else, but it happens to have been produced by the by the author. At the end, there's a small note saying, "Unfortunately, the manuscript in question has been lost from the convent in Nantes where it was being housed." So I found it, and then it immediately was lost oh, again. No. So um, it's out there now in in the book. So perhaps if the book researches, it's probably I don't know in the back of a cupboard in a convent
0: somewhere.
1: <laughs> yeah, in yeah. France. <laughs> It just made sense because A Madame, I mean Louise, was known as Madame. And it suggests to me that the Rondo was the second of the two works because the miniature shows Louise sort of enthroned. And next to her, there's a a smaller throne with a, a kind of crown sitting on it. And it suggests, and she's sort of surrounded by these courtiers, and Anne's giving her the book. And it sort of suggests to me that. This is the period of, uh, of Louise's second regency when Francis I has gone off to Italy and then he's captured and, and taken to Spain. And it's Louise who's protecting the kingdom. This The empty throne is kind of within her canopy. Um, and perhaps that Claude has has already died as well. She dies in 1524. So this is about yeah, Louise's sort of two years of when she's in charge of the kingdom. And it would be a logical step for Anne to, to turn from Claude to Louise if once Claude... Had- has died so that that's my theory and there's the certain certain emblems around louise's canopy suggest that this is also related to the her kind of claiming of the duchy of bourbon so again which is happening at, at this time as well it was it was a a kind of eureka moment oh yes <laughs>
0: can just imagine. And just for our listeners, these images that Elizabeth's discussing are in the book and they are beautiful, beautiful. I've been drooling over them just before we were talking. So if anyone wants to see those, I recommend getting a copy. So what you you mentioned that obviously Christine de Bizan was one of her influences probably. Were there any other works or people that you think maybe influenced Anne's work? And what do you think ultimately, what is she hoping to achieve through these poems?
1: Well, I think she's definitely aware of and interested in Christine de Pizan. I mean, we don't have... An inventory of Anne's library. What I've done in the book is try to reconstruct a, a sense of what is extant that, that she owned. And within that, I've identified there are two copies of the Mutation de Fortune by Christine de Pizan that she owned and she annotated. And you wouldn't describe those as being Christine's most sort of pro-feminine works, but they are about a woman having to take control of her life. And she sort of it's a mutation. She trans she's transformed into a man so that she by Lady Fortune so that she can carry on kind of steering the ship of her family through these difficult times. Um. And there are lots of references in, in the Mutation of Fortune to Amazons and, and other kinds of women from sort of classical history. So I think that was something that was that was uh, influencing Anne de Graville. And we, and we can possibly assume that she knew other works by Christine, even if we don't have any tangible evidence of that. So I think she was, in a way, she was sort of developing Christine's legacy. And I wonder whether she doesn't feel a kind of affinity with this with woman who was also working at the French court 100 years earlier. And Anne's family had a long history of service to the French kings and queens. And they were very much in, sort of present around the time of Charles V the and then Charles VI the and Charles VII and Joan of Arc. So I think, she, and she has lots of books in her collection that are sort of memorialising the Graville family lineage. So I think she's sort of, I, I like to think that across the century, the kind of the two women were sort of somehow connected and they both suffered from the vagaries of fortune. I mean, Christine de Pizan loses her husband and her father, and she sort of finds herself uh, some in some way of difficulties trying to sort of bring up her young family and andrew gravilli is disinherited by her father and sort of has to kind of get on with life and perhaps there's a, a similarity there so i think she's she's developing that legacy of, of christine and i think she's also drawing inspiration from the other works in her library um so we find references to stories that she she's embellishes certain certain bits of the of the bourgeois with with stories that that come out of other copies of things that she has in her library we might wonder who she's who she's writing for, apart from the Queen and for uh, Louise of Savoy, because there are so few copies of these books. Exactly. There's six copies of the Beaurement and one of the Rondeau. Are they for circulation amongst a small group of elite women? Are they designed perhaps to be in sort of guides on how to behave, perhaps or how to sort of reinterpreting Christine's advice in a, in a new context? So it's difficult to say, but it's, it does not seem to be promoting her works beyond a very small manuscript reading circle she doesn't go for print she's in and she lives in the age of print but she only has one printed book in her library and perhaps she's just more interested in this kind of circulation amongst a small coterie of of of
0: women readers so let's talk a little bit about Anne the reader and collector now Mm -hmm. so so what books and manuscripts did she have you have mentioned a couple obviously already in her Mm -hmm. library and what do they tell us about her interests her beliefs and even her like collecting practice as well
1: So we could sort of divide her library into sort of of different sections, really. She has a group of manuscripts that she inherits from her parents um, but she doesn't inherit those until the resolution of the inheritance debate uh, around she's written the books are written in them inherited in 1518 from the you know from the collection of of her father louis that's that group there there are some books that she buys second hand in rouen there's uh, five or six books that that in 1521 1522 she's written in them bought in rouen and the date and they tend to be they're not particularly pretty manuscripts they're quite old Perhaps she's bought them for the... I think she's bought them for the texts that are inside. She's not bought them for the the aesthetic value. Uh, There are certain books that she receives as gifts. So one of the earliest books in her collection uh, must be The Chaldean Histories, which is the image on the front cover of the book. And that was... Probably commissioned for her by her husband Pierre de Balzac. There's an interesting uh, prologue at the start, which addresses her and says the book has been produced. I was made. I was made to make the book by love, um, as a way of kind of giving you some uh, consolation for this terrible, these tribulations through which you're going at the moment. And I think it's probably a reference to the to the marriage debacle. And it's a beautifully illustrated piece that puts Anne sort of very much centre stage she's in the process of receiving the book from a sort of disembodied hand and it's a translation of some books reportedly written by Barrosus, uh, and actually written by a 15th century Italian who was who had pretended he'd found some books by the ancient author the Chaldean priest Barrosus. and I think it's an early indication of Anne's interest in translation in um in sort of these books are related to sort of French history and tracing the lineages of the of the European houses back to Troy. And so I think it's Pierre had it made to honour Anne and her kind of emerging literary interests. And that's a thread that we can see running through her collection is this interest in in what we call remaniement in French, just kind, of, kind of like reworkings, uh, translations in the sort of sense of not just from one language to another, but from one poetic form to another. So she has several books as well that relate to the history of the Graville families, I think I mentioned before, some of which kind of come from her, her parents' collection. She has some romances. She seems to like chansons de geste, So she has quite a lot of old, as in old texts and old copies of texts. So sort of thirteenth, 12th, 13th, 14th century texts in 12th, 13th, 14th century copies. And then she has also this wonderful copy of Petrarch's Triumphs that was, that she commissioned in probably in Rouen in 1520, 1525, again around this time where she's she's more active and seems to have more money. There's a lot of interest in in Petrarch's triumphs in Rouen at this time in France. Lots of Petrarch's manuscripts come back from the Italian campaigns through the Cardinal Georges d'Amboise. And there's lots of sort of the theme of the triumph is sort of present in the city in various different forms. And I think this the commissioning of this copy of the the triumphs, which is related to a copy owned by the Cardinal Georges d'Amboise, sort of situates her very much in kind of Norman literary culture and her links to kind of Norman aristocracy. So I think her her collection is about sort of shaping her identity as, um, as a woman, um, interested because there's certain also certain books in her collection that kind of relate to the Kitchell des family, even if they're not specifically Kitchell texts, but books that have complicated or problematic female figures in them. Um, it's also about situating her, yes, within her Norman heritage. She's given a book by the prince, or the kind of what you call the prince du is the prince of the poetry competition that's held in in Rouen every year. She's given a copy of the winning poems from fifteen twenty four, um, and it's these are prefaced by a long prologue that extols Anne de Graville and her family and the, her Norman origins. So again, she sort of she seems to have been quite well known, and the collection seems to sort of situate her in that kind of that kind of milieu. She also has romance texts. And as I said, only one printed work, which is quite unusual for the 1520s, perhaps. Yeah. <laughs> but it's, it's a work, again, it's a translation. It's a copy of Virgil's Georgics, and it's printed sort of with the, the French translation with bits of the Latin in the margins. And, and that's also a sort of feature of her Petrarch manuscript. She has the translation with the Petrarch sort of around in the commentaries around the edge. So again, that kind of that link between... Well, debate between texts that's happening within books, I think, is something that, that crops up in her um, in her library. And the other interesting thing that I noticed is that she seems to be interested in having, as I said, she's interested in reworkings and copies, but she owns six texts in different redactions. So she owns two copies of the Mutation de Fortune, but one is not a copy of the other. It's two different versions, so different sort of from two different versions of the original text. She owns two copies of the Histoire Ancienne jusqu'à César in two different redactions. She owns a prose version and a poetry version of Mil*. So I think she's she's deliberately seeking out things that she already owns to complement them, perhaps to see how people have reworked them, perhaps to complement or to fill in gaps in certain texts that she has that, that have different information in other versions. So it's a very interesting kind of feature of her library.
0: Absolutely. And, and so you said that she's writing for a fairly, well, it seems to be writing for a fairly sort of small audience. What links does she have, though, to other women writers of the time?
1: So she is the sister-in-law of Catherine d'Amboise. Catherine d'Amboise is the niece of the cardinal Georges d'Amboise, who I mentioned is active in Rouen. And Catherine has, she's been the subject of uh, renewed interest recently as well. There's been a new edition of her works published and she, like Anne, I think is interested in the position of women in society. Her works are a lot more biographical, and she again, she's also the sort of victim of fortune. She loses her husband, she loses her son. But she's Anne's sister-in-law by marriage. And I think that they possibly shared literary interests and they were perhaps moving in the same circles around in Bourges. And I mean Bourges are it's in the Duchy of Margaret of Navarre, who we know and probably had links to. And Margaret's secretary, Jacques Thibou, or Thibouste, I'm not quite sure how you pronounce these old French names, um, and his wife, Jeanne de la Fonte, had a literary salon in, in Bourges. And Jeanne de la Fonte also rewrote Boccaccio's to Seder, but this is a work that's also been lost, so we don't know whether she wrote it like Andy from the French version or whether she translated it from the Italian, but there's obviously something going on there with, with Boccaccio. And Anne's sister, uh, Jeanne de Graville, was also uh, linked to Bourges because she becomes quite involved with the Annonciade convent that's founded by Jeanne of France, the sister of Charles VIII. So I can sort of imagine that there's perhaps Catherine, Jeanne, who might have received a copy of Catherine d'Amboise's works, Margaret of Navarre, who's also, her works, her writings also show a kind of familiarity with Chartier and a familiarity with the Guerrelle des Femmes, that they're perhaps, you know, they maybe take the opportunity to sit and discuss these literary characters, the Belle Dame Sans Merci. Jacques Thibault has, a, has a, a a very important copy, a very late but very complete copy of the, the sort of complete works of the Quiraine de la Belle Dame Sans Merci, and he has annotations in them, and some of those annotations match readings in Anne's copy of the Rondeau. So you can sort of imagine that these women, and indeed perhaps men, were sort of sitting around discussing these various literary incarnations and, and how to approach them and rewrite them. And also when you look at some of uh, Catherine d'Auboisy's manuscripts, they're sharing illuminators, perhaps. they're in, Again, they're in the same circles and, and sharing information about... Oh, Perhaps you'd like to have this illuminator come and do your book, and I, perhaps you'd like a copy of this, and I, we can imagine all sorts of things. But I think there was definitely a, what I try to trace in the book is a kind of, rather than seeing Christine de Pizan at the beginning of the 15th century as a kind of the only woman fighting for <laughs> the defense of women, is to sort of see how her legacy is then picked up by other women in different ways, and how the Querelle actually sort of evolves and changes. And so I also look a little bit at Anne of France, who <clears throat> I mentioned earlier, who's a sister of, of Charles VIII, and ranges. Regent for one, she writes a book for her daughter called *The Enseignement*, the, my lessons for my daughter, and it's not sort of perhaps pro-feminist in the same way as um, Christine de Pizan's, but she's about sort of telling her daughter how to how to run a household, how to be strong, how to how to manage her life as a As an aristocratic woman. And I think, and that book becomes, it gets printed. So it's possibilities that Anne and her entourage read Anne of France's work. And then, yeah, these things kind of get picked up on and we can kind of get a sort of sense of the long durée, I suppose, of of Christine's legacy and how it, it gets transformed by the way women write about each other, not just by the way men write about women, if that makes sense. Yeah.
0: And just out of interest, does Anne's religious views play a part in her work?
1: I don't know. The thing is with Anne's And religious views is that there's not a lot of information out there. That we know that she uh, was probably interested in, or certainly interested in, the religious reform that was happening in the sort of 1510s, 1520s in France, and in which Margaret of Navarre was very much implicated, and also probably Claude of France. She shelters two evangelical reformers at her castle. We have a letter that says Pierre Caroli, for instance, says that he's been given shelter at the castle of Madame um, in 1525, 26, I think. And he's, he's sort of being exiled. He goes, I think he goes, ends up in Geneva or somewhere. So she's obviously got some connections with the religious reform movement, but I, I searched and I couldn't really find any other strong indicators of that. And in her library, there are no relatively no religious or devotional works. I mean, she there's a book of ours that is was probably made for her parents that some people have suggested she might have inherited or her husband might have inherited perhaps been adapted for them but there's no book of hours that belonged to Anne de Graville that I found and there are no sort of obviously pro-evangelical or 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 religious texts but we can imagine again if she was in the I mean, it's the same thing's happening in England. She was in the sort of circle of Anne Boleyn early on in her life. And we know that her father's also very interested in reform as well, but perhaps not to the same extent as, as later reformers. So it's it's a, it's a strange one. But I think that the lack of sort of specific devotional texts in her library also encourages us to think, well, what does make a woman's library? And is it worth thinking about women's libraries in a different way? And are women's libraries a thing as opposed to men's libraries? Because there's been a lot of work on on digging out, you know, kind of bringing women's libraries to light and sort of trying to characterize them in particular ways, which has been really helpful for, you know, feminist scholarship and sort of seeing things in a, in a different way. But now I'm beginning to wonder with Anne's library, whether we just need to assess them on their own merits, like we might a men's library. So, it's about her interests her her interest in her family history her interest in or not in religion her interest in literature rather than just sort of trying to group women together as mm. readers of devotional and romance texts so I think that's that's been an interesting thought process.
0: And so Queen Claude dies fairly young in 1524 mm. so you've talked a little bit about Anne's life after that but but what do we know about what became of her following the Queen's death?
1: Well I think we know more about her after the Queen's death than we did, perhaps we did before. Or we know a lot, we know most about Anne de in the archives in the period between the resolution of her inheritance, 1518, 1520, and some dates in 1530 and something, maybe 1535, 36. So I think she's established, by the time Claude dies, she's Established as a as a as a writer, she seems to have a literary reputation. So she writes the more which she's copied in six manuscripts, and then we find her just before that she's buying these second-hand books in Rouen. She orders her copy of Petrarch's Triumphs around 1524, 25 maybe. She's given the copy of the pre-poetry in 1524. She seems to have written the for Louise of Savoy 1524 to 26. And then she's sheltering these evangelicals again in the mid-decade. So I wonder whether she's, again, it's going to make... It makes me wonder whether how much she was really relying on Claude in the first place and how much she was sort of building up her her, her network and her connections and her reputation and she's she just happened to or happened but she was she was close enough to Claude to, to write a to work for her but she wasn't sort of reliant on Claude to, to the same extent that we might assume and then when Claude dies she's kind of left destitute I think she's pretty savvy in what she's she's doing and she's she seems to have property, and she turns her attention to Louise of Savoy. I don't. We don't know how she <laughs> she experienced the, the demise of the queen, but I, I I get the impression that she was perhaps a move towards Louise of Savoy was also savvy. Perhaps she was. You know, there, there are indications that perhaps uh, Anne de Claville's family was closer yeah. to the side of the. Defecting constable of France, Charles de Beaumont montpensier because of previous family allegiances, and perhaps she was sort of trying to negotiate her place at the court by moving swiftly from this kind of disgraced constable. He, I mean, he's disgraced in sort of 1525, and then she's this is the same time that she's writing for, for Louise of Savoy. But I think she's she seems to be pretty stable, and and so you sort of wonder how much she was ever reliant on Claude, and how much she was sort of building up her own. You know, using her funds and her reputation and her connections to to sort of stabilise
0: her life. And I have one more question for you about Anne, and that's just in terms of of the books that she owned. Did you find that many of them are still extant today?
1: There is no inventory of her books at all. Um, So the manuscripts that I list and I discuss in the book are mainly extant copies. So I found something sort of thirty odd that we can place in her possession. There are a few more. That she possibly owned that we can't quite prove that she owned. And there are a couple that have disappeared. Um, some are in, well, disappeared as in some private collections, and so can't access them. A couple that are referenced in um catalogues that now we don't know where they are. But yes, but it is quite um, it's quite exciting to be able to look at you know a group of two or three dozen manuscripts and think Anne probably or actually did once hold some of these. As I said, there there are it's very eclectic. She's got the ones from her parents, which are often quite highly illuminated and quite high quality. I mean, the copy of the Mutation de Fortune that she, she, that she likely inherited from her mother is one made under Christine de Pizan's supervision. So not only are you <laughs> holding a book that Anne held, but probably a book that Christine de Pizan maybe held before her. Oh. And other ones are sort of much less uh, unassuming. And some of the copies of the Book roman are likely written in Anne's hand. One of them may be a kind of autographed copy or you see annotations in the margins. So again, there's that kind of nice connection to, to her
0: actual poetic practice yeah that's wonderful that's that's very powerful I think holding something that you know they once held
1: yeah yeah definitely yeah
0: well Elizabeth we've come to the time of the episode where we do a little 10 to go so 10 questions just to get to know Uh, you a little bit better nothing nothing too (laughs) tricky so the first one is what is the last film or perhaps a series that you watched
1: Uh, I'm in the middle of watching Designated Survivor (laughs) Which is weird, because sometimes in the just want to just like chill out completely and absolutely. watch something no. that doesn't take too much brain power. Exactly. I should have said it was—I don't know—should have said it was *The Crown*. Or no, Jesus. no,
0: you can no, no, that's absolutely fine. So, what about a book that you've gone back to and read more than once?
1: I used to read books several times in the past. I don't tend to do it so much anymore, but I did read *Captain Corelli's Mandolin* a couple, at least twice. I think as a kid, I read everything twice.
0: That's perfect. And what about a favorite holiday destination?
1: Well, every year we go to the south of France, to the same village, Saint Chignon, where there's lovely wine. Um, it's not too touristy, there's lots of lovely scenery, you can just chill out, the market is amazing. So other than that,
0: Italy, Florence. And when you were a child, what did you what did you hope to be when you were older?
1: Oh goodness me. I think I probably went through the whole the whole gamut of um, I want to be a nurse, I want to be a teacher, I want to be an artist. And then I think I went to university and thought, I like this researching lark. What can I do to, to stay in this?
0: Fabulous. And and what's something that you love about where you live? Well, in Birmingham, um,
1: we have on the campus, we have an amazing art gallery called the Barber Institute of Fine Arts. And it's not just a gallery, it's also a concert space. So it's also art and music, but it has the most exquisite collection of European painting from sort of Simon Martini up until the 1950s Auerbach and people like that and it's it's a pleasure to be able to work in the building and then take my students upstairs to to just look at these works firsthand it's a real it's a real gem of a of a collection
0: and what do you do to relax and unwind and kind of switch off from all the work
1: um, well, I play the violin and the viola and I've been having viola lessons. It started during the confinement and um, I just decided I wanted to have yeah, something else to do other than <laughs> writing a book. So I um, yeah I play the viola to myself, sometimes in some small string orchestras and I play the piano as well. So that's my and I do lino cutting, yeah, animals and scenery, that kind of thing. That's my chill out, go to
0: stuff, art yeah. and music. Lovely, lovely. And what's a, a favourite historic site or historic house that you like to, to visit?
1: Well, I had a fabulous time in probably about 10 years ago, um, when we were footloose. and factory free we did have a child, <laughs> um, going around the Loire Valley, and we visited many of the chateaux in the Loire Valley that were inhabited by Anne of France, Anne of Brittany, by Claude, we went to Broire, um, And there was an amazing, in one of the castles, I think it's in Loch. There is a, someone will correct me if I'm wrong, a tiny chapel entirely decorated with Anna Brittany's Cordelier and ermine her, her kind of personal symbols, and it's it's tiny, but the whole place is just the, the pillars, the walls, the 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 niche where the oratory where she put it, it was all decorated just just for her. And I had to admit that I hopped over the the barrier that was the cord barrier that was up just so, so I take some photos
0: of That sounds wonderful. I didn't I was in the Loire Valley last year and it was beautiful, but I didn't see that one, so I must have I must have missed that. I think together.
1: it's one of the less less attractive castles on the outside.
0: Right okay i don't yet
1: it's tucked away in a corner somewhere
0: now i already know the answer to this i think because i've seen some today but do you have any pets or you currently have any pets
1: <laughs> well uh, there's a cat that belongs to the neighbor right. uh, who is called scarlet and she um during lockdown she spent a lot of time asleep on my sofa so she was the kind of teaching companion, and she's she's a bit comes and goes. She blows hot and cold. At the moment, she's on a she's on a phase where she wants to come and pester us. She's a, she it's a kind of shared custody.
0: Lovely, cat. yeah. Cats tend to do that. That's that's very yeah. interesting.
1: Well, yeah. I, they go where the warmth is. I think.
0: Right. Okay. And lucky last, we have a lot of listeners who themselves would would like to follow a career in history or perhaps write a book. Do you have yeah. any advice for them at all? It takes patience.
1: Yeah, I think it's important to perhaps use your sources wisely so or or have a a vast amount of sources that you can draw your story out of I always say this to my students when they're writing essays don't start off with an idea that something happened and try to prove it but do your primary research first and then you know kind of your 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 narrative will emerge from from that so it's much easier to to do it that way than to try and make your evidence fit a kind of theory that you have in your head really yeah and um always, always, always fill in your footnotes because at the end
0: of the day, when you're scrambling, you can spend a lot of
1: time looking for one (laughs) tiny page reference. (laughs) That is so true.
0: Oh gosh, that's so true. Such valuable advice. And there is the final, very final thing um, that we do on the podcast. And that is, I normally call it a Tudor takeaway, but in this case, just a 16th century takeaway. So basically something for our listeners to go off and explore after the episode that might perhaps deepen their understanding of what we've been talking about, or just something nice to look at <laughs> related to the 16th century.
1: Well, you can go away and look at Andrew graville's works on on Gallica, on the BNF website. But what uh-huh. I was going to say was, because I have this interest in music, um, I also have an interest in, Tudor music oh lovely so the 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 works of Thomas Tallis and William Byrd I love to listen to those so I would suggest listening to Talis's Speminalium which is a 40-part motet or his composition If Ye Love Me or the, the works of his pupil William Bird, his four-part mass is, is something I can't work and listen to music at the same time but if uh-huh. I'm doing something mundane like checking footnotes I'll put something on like that so. To, oh,
0: to lovely. I think um, that's a really lovely takeaway that we can all do. So thank that you. That so brings much. us back to
1: England as well. And it uh, does
0: and, bring us back to England, and exactly. England. exactly. And yes. Elizabeth, thank you so much for taking the time to talk about your work with us. And again, the book is absolutely absolutely stunning. I've read the introduction. I cannot wait to jump into bed to continue reading. <laughs> <laughs> thank,
1: thank you, you so very much. much. great to talk to you. Yeah, lovely. Thank you.
0: Well, that brings us to the end of this episode of Talking Tudors. Thank you so much for joining us. I absolutely love to hear from listeners, so if you have any comments or suggestions or just want to say hi, please get in touch with me via my website, www.onthetudortrail.com, where you'll also find show notes for today's episode. If you've enjoyed the show, please share the podcast with friends and family, and don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review. I also invite you to join our Talking Tudors podcast group on Facebook where you can interact with other Tudor history lovers and hear all the behind the scenes news. You'll also find me on Twitter. My handle is on the Tudor trail and on Instagram as the most happy 78. It's time now for us to re-enter the modern world. As always, I look forward to talking Tudors with you again very soon.